Find your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. Last year I was uh, catching a cab. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, got a cab, and, you know, cab drivers generally pretty conversant. They like to talk. I don't know if I think they're going to get more tip that way or what, but so I uh, started talking with this guy and found out that he's a Muslim, told me that, and it was pretty interesting. The last three cabs that I've been in, I've had Muslim cab drivers. And so I've actually learned quite a bit about the Muslim faith, what they believe. And at the same time, I've had opportunities to actually share the truth and the reality of, of Jesus Christ. And so I was talking with my cab driver, and so we were having a very good conversation. I just asked, well, well, who do you think Jesus is? I said, well, he's a prophet, the son of Mary. I'm like, really? So uh, Jesus didn't have a human father. And he goes, oh, no. It's one of the miracles of Jesus. Really? So he was he was born of a virgin. He had no human father. Do you know anybody else like that? Uh, no. And so I use that to just kind of talk him through and say, you know, the uniqueness of Jesus birth was to show the complete uniqueness of his life, his death and his resurrection. He came because he's fully man, fully God to pay the full penalty for our sin, and it all gets started with the uniqueness of his birth to announce to the world, this is my son. He is the son of God, fully God, fully man. And he said, well, I, I don't believe that he's God. I said, well, well, why not? Well, there's only one God, and some other men wrote those things about Jesus. And I said, really? That is the question, isn't it? Is Jesus Christ, is he God or is he not? You know, Jesus made the claim that he is fully God. In fact, that's why the Jewish leaders on several occasions wanted to kill him, because he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God. And to that, he said, well, uh, some other men wrote those things about him, and they put that into the book. And really what he was saying is that the Bible is not reliable, that we can't trust it, that well, yeah, there's, there's probably truths in there, but, but on the other hand, there's some errors, and it's all mixed together. And what he was basically saying is that we can't trust the Bible. And that's the question I'd like to ask you. Do you think we really can trust this book? I mean, is it reliable? Can we put our faith in this? Can we trust it? You know, that is, that is a critical question that every single person has to answer. Can we believe the Bible? Why is it important? And how do you know that this book is true? Do you have an answer for it? And it's got to be better than, well, the pastor of my church told me that, and that's what I believe. It's got to go deeper than that. You have to have an answer as to what you really believe this book is. Because eternity, your eternity, is hanging in the balance. What do you believe about this book? We've started our study in the book of Titus. We have hit upon... A couple of verses that are critical in our understanding of not only the nature of God, but the trustworthiness of his word. And so picking up Titus chapter one, verse one, remember we saw he says, Paul, he says, I am a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now, this is what I want you to see. Look at verse two. Look at an, an emphasis he gives of the character of God. He says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You see, it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. We know that like water is made up of two parts of hydrogen, one part oxygen. It is H, two parts of hydrogen, one part oxygen. That is just the nature of water and truthfulness is the nature of God. God speaks truth. It is just part of who he is. He's truthful, and hence he speaks truth. It's kind of like what Jesus said about, the, about Satan. He said, you know, Satan, when he speaks, he always speaks lies. Remember this in John chapter 8, verse 44? Because he speaks from his own nature, and he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. So when Satan speaks, whether he is verbalizing uh, uh, statements that are found in the Bible or even speaks in their thoughts that come through our head. When Satan comes along, he always speaks that which is not true because he speaks according to his nature. With God, 
God always speaks according to his nature. And because he is truthful, he speaks truth. And this is a true. This is a uh, an emphasis of the entire Bible to emphasize that God, the triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit are truth. They speak truth. So like, for instance, God, the father, we see this in Titus one, two. But there's also in Hebrews six, 18, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. It's it's impossible for him because he is absolutely true. Or, for instance, God, the son. Remember, Jesus makes this great statement. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. I am truth. I speak truth. It is part of the nature of my being. And God, the Holy Spirit. On several occasions, he's referred to as the spirit of truth, like in John 14, 17 or 15, 26. You see, God can always be trusted because he is always truthful and he has manifested his word. His word is truth. And so you see, verse two, Titus one, two, he says, God, which who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word. God is truth he has delivered truth and he has done so in his word now what do we really believe about the bible i'd like to give you just a fourfold description of god's word first of all it is inspired okay now that word means literally god breathe it's reference to the spirit directed error-free production of the scriptures in the original documents we believe that the bible comes from God. It is inspired. Now, when I say the word inspired, it's not like some people use the word inspired like it was a beautiful spring day and I saw this butterfly it was flying and I was so overcome with emotion that I was inspired to write this song and I'm going to sing it for you now. And you're like, oh, no. Right. OK. Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word inspired like that. It's, it, when we speak of inspiration, it talks about the process in which God actually delivers his word. And a great statement on that is found in the book of Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, this is what it says. Listen carefully. It says, but, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever given or is never made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is what happened. God's Holy Spirit moved men to write exactly what God would want. And he used it through a human vehicle. So their experiences, their language, their background, their cultural context. He used people, people like you and I. He used them to write out specifically through his Holy Spirit exactly what he wanted them. That is inspiration. That's the process. And so the result is this. The result is that all scripture is inspired by God. God moved through the Holy Spirit, through these different men. They wrote, they wrote what God intended them to write without adding to it or subtracting to it. And at the same time, God used all of their experiences, their language, their culture, their context. And they wrote exactly what God intended. The result is all scripture is inspired by God. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired means literally from the breath or the mouth of God. It is all scriptures inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so that's what God did. He used human authors and yet he is the divine author and he works through his holy spirit and he produced what we call the scriptures we believe them to be inspired let me give you another uh aspect of what we believe about god's word not only is it inspired but we also believe that it's inerrant inerrant means that the bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings that it's completely accurate that it's error free in its original manuscripts And the scriptures talk about this, that the words of God are pure. They're undefiled. They're not tainted. They have no error in it. And the logic is really simple. God cannot err. Remember, he cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Okay. And then the Bible is God's word. Okay. God cannot lie. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, the word of God is 
completely truthful. It is inerrant. Okay, and this inerrancy, it really extends to the original manuscripts, the ones, the very first letters that were written and which these men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote. Okay, let me give you a third word that we believe about the Bible. Inspired. Believe it's inerrant. We believe it's infallible. And that word means that it's completely trustworthy in all of its teachings. It's reliable. It's dependable. It's incapable of failing because its author is completely trustworthy. And then let me give you a fourth word. It is authoritative. We believe the Bible is given to us by God and it is it is his revelation of truth. It tells us everything we know. It's his disclosure about himself, instruction for life. It's our guide for faith. It is the accurate record of events. We believe that it is authoritative. Now, there's somebody or some people might go, wait, wait, there's there's errors in the Bible. OK, and let's talk about that for just a minute here. Now, there are there are some some numbers. Generally, there are some numbers that perhaps maybe not reconcile. And I would like to talk about that for just a minute here. Okay, the Bible describes that took these original letters, they wrote meticulously what they found there. And they had a system, they actually did counting, they began with one letter and started at the end and counted back. They had a system in which they did that. A being a scribe was to be a meticulously write down what was given to you. Now, they, the scribes were so careful to write what had been passed on to them, even when they could see where the previous scribe had made an error, they actually would copy that. In some cases, they actually made a note. But we could generally find where these little errors are. They're generally with numbers. There is no scribal error in terms of when they were copying that affects any major or any minor doctrine. Context usually reveals where that error is, or you actually can see where they actually got the number mixed up. But it is important for you to know that the copies of the Bible that we have are extremely reliable. Okay? Now, there are thousands of manuscripts, and we can have, with a great degree of certainty, know that our Bible is very pure. In fact, the great New Testament scholar A.T. Robinson said that through his assessment, because of the number of manuscripts that we have, we can know, for instance, the, not, the New Testament is 99.9% pure. We, have, we can have great trust in even these copies, these English copies and versions that we have. Now, to say that the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative. Those are huge claims. There's a lot of people that aren't going to go, mm-mm, no, don't believe that. In fact, a lot of folks in churches will go, mm, I don't know about that. The Bible's a nice book, does some good things. You can take some nice stuff there, you leave some other stuff. It can be inspirational, but they do not make the statement that it's inerrant, infallible, it is authoritative and it's inspired. Those are substantial claims. Is there support that this book is truly God's word and it's inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative? I think it's overwhelmingly yes. I'd like to show that to you because you need to know what this book is. Let me just give you some support for the claim that the Bible is the word of God. First of all, it's look at its internal consistency. This is this is amazing. There are there's 66 books in the Bible. It was written over four by over 40 different human authors, 66 separate books written over a time span of get this 1500 years. And these people came from a variety of backgrounds. You had shepherds, you had fishermen, you had kings. And they all speak and write with a marvelous unity. It shows the supernatural origins of the scripture. I mean, there's an amazing unity, and it's all about the sovereign God establishing himself and involving himself in creation and promising and delivering a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that whole theme is developed through the Bible, and, it's, and it actually even ends with the culmination that Christ has established his kingdom. He's returned again. That theme is seen throughout. You and I, we'd have a hard time even writing a story consistently. But to spread it over that period of time is absolutely amazing. We would expect that people over 1,500 years period of time, that it would be a conglomeration of confusion, right? Absolutely not. There is complete unity. 
in this. Let me give you another one. I, I find this fascinating. Another supporting claim, uh, support to the claim that the Bible is the word of God, and that is in fulfilled Bible prophecy. I mean, this is just fascinating. There's two major categories of prophecy. There's general prophecy, messianic prophecy. General prophecy has the idea of the, the prediction that there's going to be a fall of a city or a rise of a people group or um, the reestablishment, the desolation and reestablishment of Jerusalem. This is general prophecy. And the Bible has hundreds of these statements that are made. So let me give you ones that you're familiar with, like Joseph. Remember, he's a slave in Egypt Pharaoh, he is the king, the ruler of Egypt. He has this dream. No one can interpret it. They hear about this guy named Joseph. They clean him up. They bring him out. And Joseph gives Pharaoh an interpretation of his dream. He says, let me tell you what it is. Remember, and he said there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land. Okay. And then that other part of the dream where he didn't understand where that, that cow that was fat gets skinny and he dies and goes away. There's going to be seven years of famine in the land. And it happened exactly like that. That's exactly what history records. How did, how did he know that? Because God had revealed to him, and it's recorded in his word. Let me give you some other prophecies. Like the book of Daniel, several years ago, we actually went through it, is a fascinating book. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He has this dream, and it's a statue, and it's totally bothering him, and he can't get anybody to tell him what it means. But Daniel walks up, and he tells him, you know that dream that you had? Well, that statue, that's a picture of all the national, national powers that are going to rule over Israel. And he says, you know, it starts off with you. You've got Babylon, but then it's going to kind of move on there. And you've got the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the Greeks. Then you have the Romans. And then there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. And eventually it's going to end up with God's eternal kingdom. And he spells it out. And that is exactly how history has been playing out. And, it's, and, and God is batting a thousand. He has never missed. And he revealed this long before it actually came to fruition. Or, for instance, Isaiah writes of a ruler that's going to, to arise and he's going to actually free the Jew, people of Israel to go back and rebuild and go back and resettle in Jerusalem. And the guy's name, they actually, he actually names him. He, they say his name is Cyrus. And not just once, but several times. Uh, you can find this Isaiah chapter 44, verses 28 through 45, 7. He keeps naming Cyrus. He's going to release the Jewish people. And 150 years later... There is a man, his name is Cyrus, and he does just that. And you could talk about cities like the Phoenician city of Tyre that was told that it's going to, it's going to be destroyed. Or Nineveh. Now, you're familiar with Nineveh, but it, Nineveh was one of the most formidable ancient cities. It's thought that it could never be destroyed. It was, and it was right alongside the Tigris River. In fact, the Tigris River, even part of it flew, went through it. And Nahum, he said, you know what? It is going to be destroyed with a flood. And that's exactly what happened. That they had a huge storm. The Tigris River swelled. It actually washed out parts of the wall. And the Babylonians went in and they conquered and they literally destroyed that city. And so all of these, these are general prophecy. Why does God do that? He is showing that he is fully in control. He sees the beginning and the end as if they're one. And he speaks as such. He speaks of future events as if they're past because he sees all things. He is the God who's fully in control of all of time. The other reason he does this is he is showing you the reliability of his word, that this book can be trusted. But there's general prophecy, but then there's also messianic prophecy. This is prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, this promised Messiah, one who would come and suffer and die, take away the sins of the world, and that he would reign as king. It's called messianic prophecy. Now, by one count, there are 333 prophecies made in regards to the Messiah. Over a hundred of them, over a hundred of them were fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his first coming. Now, let me just give you some that you're very familiar with. Prophecies concerning Christ. In fact, I'll just give you eight. Let me give, let's start. First of all, Genesis 3.15 says, this promised one, he's going to be born of a woman. Okay, this Messiah is going to be born of a woman. He's going to come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, 22.18 as well. He's going to be born and he's going to come through the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10. 
He's going to come from the son of David. You see this narrowing that's taking place here? He's going to be a son of David, 2 Samuel 17, 12 through 13. He's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. I mean, that little, that little town outside of Jerusalem, about six miles, there's just a bunch of sheep herders hanging out there. Yeah, Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born, Micah 5, 2. He's going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. This one is going to suffer and die for our sins, Isaiah 53. He's going to come about A.D. 33, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. And he's going to rise from the dead. Take a look at Isaiah 53. I think it's like verse 10 where he talks about that he's going to see his offspring. Eight prophecies that are given. Jesus Christ fulfills over a hundred of them. Where he's coming from, where he's going to be born, his lineage, his line, who's he the son of. It is all spelled out with great detail. And the reason is this, that the world would not miss that that prophetic doorway is so narrow that only one person could ever walk through it. And Jesus Christ has. It is to show you that this book is reliable and that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Now, this is like this is kind of hard for us to understand. But uh, there's a guy that's helped us out in our thinking. His name is Peter Stoner. He is a scientist in the area of mathematical probabilities. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. Now, he says, if you just take eight Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled to find the probability of that happening in one person is 10 to the 17th power. Okay, All right. We got some pretty sharp folks here. How many zeros is that? I mean, okay, you're familiar with 10 to the 17th power, right? No, you're not. That. That is like when our government says, well, we're just only a trillion dollars in debt. You're just like, that number is so big, we just, we just can't comprehend it. And so he knows that 10 to the 17th power, people are like, well, that, that sounds like that would be pretty hard to do to get eight prophecies filled in one man. And you'd re- keep reading, but he goes, let me help you. And he, he actually says, I will illustrate it. And he was very helpful for us Texans because he picked the state of Texas. Now, we're very happy about our state, right? And we know all about it, and our children are indoctrinated with everything about this great state that has become part of the Union. For instance, does anybody know the square miles in the state of Texas for a steak dinner with Matt Reynolds? No. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay. It's 266,853 square miles. Massive. To help you understand 10 to the 17th power and the and and, and that and, to, and that the, there would be eight prophecies fulfilled in one man. He says this. It'd be like the equivalent of taking the state of Texas and covering it, every single speck of it, with two feet high worth of silver dollars that are just laid out flat over the entire state. You were to mark out one. OK, maybe you mark it with an X and you put it in there in the entire state. And you shuffle it and you mix it all up and then you get a representative of your state. And so we would we would naturally we were going to pick Bubba. Right. All right. And he's good. And he's sure he's got a sure hand. And all Bubba has to do, all he has to do is he has to just kind of walk around the state and he's blindfolded and he just has to pick up the one marked one. And Bubba's going to do it. How many of you think that Bubba is going to actually just be able to do it? Okay, we'll take the blindfold off. We'll let him look. Will, will he find it? You know, the, that, the likelihood of him picking out that coin is the likelihood that one man could fulfill eight prophecies. Are you starting to get the picture? Jesus fulfilled over a hundred in his first coming, and he promised to come back. And what he does, in fact, it's written in the book of Revelation, he fulfills all of them. I'll tell you what. I find that to be absolutely fascinating, and I hadn't, I haven't been a Christian all my life. I actually became a Christian when I was in college. I remember two believers, when I was a non-believer, show me prophecies from the Bible. A couple of them that really stood out to me was like, like Micah 5.2. It says that, that this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. 
Did you know that 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 prophecy was written 700 years before it actually occurred, as recorded in Matthew chapter 2? Or the other one that I found to be extremely staggering was Psalm 22, when they actually give the details of a crucifixion. And David is writing of the experiences that are far greater than he had ever had, speaking prophetically of the greater son of David who would actually experience them. And the thing that's fascinating about that is that Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ. And here's something else. Crucifixion at that time wasn't even a known form of execution. Where does that come from? That comes from God. Let me give you some other just affirmations that this book is God's word and it can be fully trusted. Look at its effects on human history. The Bible has influenced tremendously the course of human history. Millions upon millions of people are living proof that this book is from God. Do you know the the best-selling book every single year? You guys know what it is? I've told you this before. It's the B-I-B-L-E. It is always the number one selling book. And it and so you know what? They don't even report it anymore. And so you'll think it's Harry Potter's book or something weird or something like that. The number one selling book is always the Bible. In fact, it is estimated that there is a hundred million Bibles each year that are produced and that in the world In the course of history, there's been 2.5 billion up to 6 billion Bibles produced. Why? Because God fully intends that his word is going to shape the course of human history and specifically the lives of those who believe in him. This This is amazing. But do you know that China, China now has the world's largest plant that is producing Bibles. It's outside of, it's on the eastern city of Nanjing. It's right outside on the edge. It has a plant that is producing a million Bibles a month. That is pretty remarkable. And just by the way, did you know that recently the government of China has invited Family Life, that Christian ministry that Bill and Jenny Hunt, our missionaries, work with, they've invited that ministry to come and to, completely above board, help them with all of their marriages that are in dire shape. God is doing something. His word continues to go forth and to go out, go out despite the, what we would say are overwhelming odds that say that would never happen, especially like a place in China. Let me give you some more support or affirmation that the Bible is indeed God's word. It gives us clear instruction about relationship with God. You would think that if God is going to give his word, he'd tell us how you and I can really have a relationship with him. And it does. It points out that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are self-centered. We have a sinful nature. We're just like our father Abraham. We are, we are on our own agenda. And our sinfulness, our missing the mark, is not what God intended. And so someone has to pay the penalty for sin because God's upholding justice in the universe. So he sent his son, Jesus, to not only pay the penalty for our sin, But he rose again that you and I who believe in him can have authentic, genuine, spiritual life by actually having a relationship with him. We're united with Christ. He spells that in great detail in this book, the Bible. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.15 says that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. This book points to Jesus and tells you how you can have relationship with him. Let me give you another substantiation. Look at the self-claims of the Bible itself. What does, what does the Bible have to say for itself? Well, get ready. Okay. Statements like, thus says the Lord, God spoke, the Lord testified. Do you know that there's, over, there's 1, 000, more than 1,300 statements just like that, just in the prophets? And in the Old Testament alone, there's over 3,800 statements like this. God saying, this, thus says the Lord, this is what I'm saying. He's telling you over and over, this is my book, these are my words. In the New Testament, over 40 times you find the statement about the word of God, or this is being, this is God's word. Okay, so we've got, we've got all this different proof. Let me give you two more. Let me give you one that, uh, as a, as a believer, uh, I find to be absolutely convincing, convincing in terms of the authority of this book. And that it's truly God's word. And that is looking at Jesus' views of the Bible. What, is, what did Jesus think 
about the scriptures. Okay. About, what about the one, you know, who's proven to the world through his miracles and his resurrection that he's God? What does he believe about this book? Well, he made it pretty clear. Matthew chapter five, verse 18, he says this until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He believed that every single thing that God has spelled out in his word is going to come to fruition. In fact, he even prayed shortly before he was going to be crucified. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Have them develop and grow in your word because your word is truth. That's what Jesus thought about his word. Now, Jesus viewed the Old Testament as the word of God and completely authoritative. Now, there's some tough stuff, though, like in the Old Testament. A couple years ago, I was talking with one of my relatives, and we were talking about the subject about the Bible and can you actually believe it. And he gave me the, and I'm sure you've heard this before, well, you know that story about Jonah being swallowed by this big, huge fish or whale? I can't believe that. That just can't be true. And so that's why I can't believe the Bible. And I'm sure you've heard things like that before. And, you know, I, I said, you know what? I agree with you. That is really hard to believe. Because that's just not your everyday occurrence, right? Okay. But I'll tell you what. I know someone that does believe that. I believe it. But more importantly, Jesus he believes it. What? Did you know that on that very issue, Jonah, big fish, in there for three days, twice Jesus actually referenced it. Like Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he says, you know what? This is going to be a picture of what's going to happen to me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 says, for just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, he says, I believe it. In fact, you better, because he says, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his death, Jesus absolutely believed about Jonah and the big fish and Jonah being in there for three days. Or how about Matthew 16, verse four, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Jesus believed it. Or here, here's another one. And you hear people say, well, you know, we can't really believe the Bible because it, it talks about this big cataclysmic worldwide flood and this guy named Noah and animals. It's a cute story for the kids, but there's just no way that that can be true. There again, Jesus believed it. Absolutely. And listen to what he said to say. He said this about that whole event. Matthew chapter 24, verse 38. He says, you know, for as in those days before the flood... They were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then he says, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Are you listening? Then he says this. So will the coming of the son of man be. Jesus believed it. Absolutely. And he said, you know. All those people that didn't believe Noah and he kept telling them there's floods coming and all these animals up there. And they, he was the laughing stock for many, many years. The flood did come. And Jesus says, I'm going to return. He believed it. Absolutely. In fact, it was Jesus who told his disciples, his that later be called the apostles. He says, I'm going to I'm going to give you the helper. John 14, verse 26. He is the Holy Spirit whom the father will send in my name and he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. He believed that the word of God is completely true in the Old Testament. And he says, get ready. The Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind and he's going to use you to bring to mind all that I have taught you. Let me give you just one other. I find overwhelming proof that this book is God's word. And that is the confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit. As a, as a Christian, when we read this book, there is something that takes place in us, a peace and a conviction that this book is from God. Non-Christians, I know they don't believe the Bible. I, as, a, as a non-Christian, I didn't believe the Bible. I didn't know much about it. didn't know any, hardly anything in it. I just knew that, well, I probably don't believe it. And certainly my life reflected it. But as a Christian, when you truly trust Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And there is a yearning and a desire and a faith and a peace and an affirmation that comes from his Holy Spirit. This, this indeed is God's 
holy book. See, you know, God wants us to recognize what the Bible is. It is the truth of God, and he wants to realize why he gave it to transform our lives. And so look at Titus chapter 1, verse 2. He says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, he promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. You see, Paul is saying, God has given me a stewardship. I am a herald of the king. God who cannot lie, he has delivered his word, and I am a proclaimer of it. And remember what he said in verse 1? It is the knowledge of the truth which will actually produce or lead to godliness in life. I've been entrusted with this, and I am going to deliver it. You see, the word of God is essential for us to experience the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. And so, you know what it all comes down to? It comes down to this, guys. This book. If this book is not God's word, then you know what? You can go do whatever you want with it. You can keep parts you like. Or you can do like Thomas Jefferson, take your penknife and cut out the parts you don't like. You can do whatever you want if this book isn't from God. But if this book is from God, then what we must do is we must believe it. We must heed it. Or we must prepare ourselves to face the consequences for rejecting it. And by the way, this book, the Bible, in very graphic detail, talks about the consequences of unbelief. What are you going to do? You know, for the Christian, for us, you see, the Bible, it's, it's what we believe and it shapes how we behave. It tells us about all of our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our friends, our kids, how we relate to government, how to relate to people, how to relate to even our enemies if we have such. This book tells us what we're to do. This book tells us what a church is to look like and how we're to function, how we're to grow deep and how we're to reach out. This book tells us that God has left us here for a purpose. And it's not just to consume calories and, and breathe in oxygen, but that we are a purpose in this world to manifest the life of Jesus Christ and to spread the gospel. This book tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. And God intends that his people are shaped by his word. In fact, he says, and remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So what are you going to do with this book? Years ago, I was a young guy, I was working in the insurance world, and I, I tried to get lunches with, like, guys in the church that I was going to that were just, you know, godly guys, and they had a lot going for them, and I'd like to get to know better, and I, frankly, I'd like to know what made them tick. I, I still ask that question to people. And so I've met with Roger, very successful guy, and he, had, he was a dentist, an orthodontist, and he, he was, had a significant ministry in the church I was going to, and I just asked him, well, hey, how did you end up the way you are? To which he replied, that once he started studying the Bible seriously, it began to change everything in his life. Do you have just even a, a daily, regular intake of God's word? What, how do you enrich your study of the Bible? Let me just give you some three questions to ask. I want to keep these. What is this passage teaching? Just ask that. What is this passage teaching? You know, what is it teaching about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, people, sin, sanctification, leadership, life? The adversary, what, what is this passage teaching? You know, if, if all you can do is read one passage a day, I, I challenged one of our teenagers just recently said, hey, let's just go for one passage a day. Think you can do that? Probably could do that. Well, ask, what is, what is this passage teaching? Then ask this question, why is it here? Why did God actually write this here? What are we supposed to learn? What's the purpose for why God has had this recorded? And then third, Lord, how do I respond to this? And what you want to do is you want to establish patterns in your life where God is using his revelation to bring about transformation, that he shapes your life. It becomes part of your DNA, part of the, part of the fabric of your being. Because God wants you to know this is not man's word. This is his word. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God from which you have heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, 
which does its work in you who believe. So let me just ask you this. What are you putting your faith into? What are you putting your faith into in matters of life and matters of death? Do you really feel comfortable just making it up as you go along the way? Like, well, I think I'll grab this and I've, I read something in a bookstore and I something in the Red Book magazine made a lot of sense to me. and I've incorporated that in my belief system. Do you really feel comfortable making it up that way? God says, trust me, trust me. I cannot lie. And I have delivered my word in truth. And that's what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. We believe that this book is God's word. The vision of our church is that we would grow deep in this word, that his word would permeate our entire being, how we live, how we love one another, what we do with our finances, with our time, what's important to us, our values, our convictions and our behavior. That this word, that God will continually use his word to move us out, to reach out, to embrace a lost world so that they might know the richness and the vibrancy and the essential nature of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. You know, God's word, it's working even today. In fact, it's working throughout the world. And this morning, we have our unique privilege. We have the privilege of hearing from a man that I greatly love and respect, Bill Hunt. I see you there. And he's, I asked him if he could just maybe share a little bit of how he has personally seen God use his word. And I think you guys know Bill Hunt. He's been here all weekend. We had a great night with him on our missions night. And could you maybe just take a minute or two and just kind of share with us uh, maybe an experience that you've had with God's word and how you've seen it work? Sure. In a minute or two. Or three, you know, whatever works for you. Record this and play it back because I'm going to do a minute or two. (laughs) So get the recording and play it back. Uh, Fellowship sent me in 1988 to Africa. And as Paul says in the gospel, that my heart is in love with this church simply because of the ministry we've had together. So thank you for that. My wife and I are heavily involved in a ministry to marriages. We work with family life, and our responsibility is nurturing marriages in 19 countries in Eastern Africa. I am often in front of audiences of African clergy and their wives working to train them how to do family and marriage ministry in the church, looking at what God says about marriage. And, you know, every culture has its idea of what marriage is, and then God has his idea from the Bible because Marriage was God's original institution that he created. He created it. There's a blueprint in the Bible for marriage. And if I ask you today, what are the reasons God created marriage? And are you experiencing those in your marriage? I wonder what kind of answers I would get. And in Africa, I get a lot of different answers, even from theologically trained clergy. And whenever I speak to an audience or do a training or a seminar, with a room full of African men, they fear greatly because they think that I'm going to be coming at them from a Western cultural perspective and that being a white Western American Texas from a huge state of 266,000 square miles, that I'm going to tell them to do something they hate to do, go in the kitchen. Because African men do not like the kitchen. And it's a cultural faux pas for a man, even myself, to go in the kitchen. And Jenny and I met and married in Africa. She's from Iowa. And I told her one time when we were talking through this whole issue, you know, honey, since we live in Africa, we probably need to adapt to the culture. And I probably shouldn't go in the kitchen. She didn't buy it one bit. I think the question that the world is asking and this culture that doesn't believe after everything Grant has shared with you is, does it work? What is different about reading the Bible and following God's blueprint for marriage than following my cultural norm? Does it work? I think there's no greater area in our world culture, in the United States, everywhere, where families are falling apart that living a biblical blueprint for marriage and family can be a great witness to the community. I have a hundred stories that I could tell you from all over Africa where people have begun to live and breathe God's plan and purpose for their marriage and not their cultural reason for being married and where their families have come and they've said, wow, wow, how is your marriage working? 
Because I think nothing is greater than the God, on God's heart than marriage. You know, nations have survived economic recession and depression and wars and famine. And in the country of Rwanda, where Jenny and I have been working heavily in the past two years, they've survived genocide. But no nation has ever survived when the family has fallen apart because it's the basic unit. Last summer, Jennifer and I were in Rwanda, which is an ongoing project for us. It's a huge thing that we're nurturing and developing and training leaders. And in one of our groups of young professional couples, we had uh, a couple named Hassan and Joanne. And, of course, Hassan is a Muslim name. And one of the things I love about what we do is that we do all of these seminars, and I love we do some for singles quite a bit on preparing for marriage and what is marriage and where are you heading. And I love it because we have a lot of time to go and sit and listen to their stories after we've done the seminar. And many times people will call us. We're safe, we're white, we're from America. We're not going to share their story with a lot of people. And the fun thing is I meet with a lot of those people every week now on Facebook or on Skype, and we do long-term mentoring, especially with clergy who are having issues with their wives. This young man named Hassan was sitting in our group, and he and Joanne seemed to have a great marriage, and I really wanted to hear his story. And so I uh, invited him to our apartment. We sat out under the grass under a huge avocado tree, which was awesome. You know, avocados are really expensive in America. And there we're just pulling them off the tree and eating them every day. And Hassan told me, I grew up in a Muslim home. My father has eight wives, and my mother was the only Christian in the family. So his dad had married a Christian woman. She stayed involved in the church, but she died when Hassan was 17 years old. The family refused to bury her because she was not a Muslim. And the love that the church showed to Hassan and the family and they buried the mother caused him to start thinking, is this Jesus real? What is Christianity? And he started reading the Bible. And on his own, through reading God's word, the power of the word, he became a believer and started following Jesus. Now, the incredible thing about that is that he walked into a church in Kigali, Rwanda, that embraced him, that loved him. Some men came around him and helped him grow in faith, nurtured him in the faith, and shared with him. And he met a beautiful girl there named Joanne, and they got married. Now, they were experiencing a lot of abundance in their marriage. And when we went through our training and our seminar and all that kind of stuff, they learned a lot more. And Hassan wrote me, and he said, you know, something really interesting has happened. There aren't very many successful marriages in our family. And people are married, but what's going on in the home is different than what appears on the outside uh, and what they show to the world. But they've seen that we are happy, that we've stayed faithful to one another, and it's all because we are following what God is intending for us to do. And one of the primary purposes of marriage is for our marriages to be a reflection of God's image to the world. To be a reflection of Jesus. And God takes it to the next level when we as a couple say, you know what? We want to minister together. We want our home to be a blessing to the culture. And as the love of Jesus, which is poured out in our heart through the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5, 5, it's there, appropriate it, use it, love the world. As we do that with our families, they'll be drawn to us. Because I had a similar experience. When I became a believer in university, I went home to my family which was a majorly dysfunctional family of five sisters, one brother, an alcoholic father, eight divorces, ETC, you can imagine. And I started saying, gosh, I found the answer. It's Jesus, and, and the Bible's true, and I'm walking with the Spirit. And do you know what? Everybody turned away, and they didn't listen. And after I got married and I started experiencing abundant in my, abundance in my marriage, my family, and, and what I was doing is appropriating God's blueprint. What does God say about marriage? Does it work? If I do what the Lord tells me to do in marriage, will I see abundance? And my family started asking questions and started looking. And two of my sisters came to Jesus and started walking with him and then their kids. And it wasn't anything I said. It was just the reflection of Jesus. Shining. Now, believe me, sometimes the reflection of Jesus in my marriage is very down, <laughs> and it's not there. One time we were doing premarital counseling with a couple in Nairobi, and Jenny and I were fighting like cats. You know, we were scratching each other. It was just one of those days where we were not doing well in our marriage. 
And this and the kids were listening and watching and they're telling us to breathe spiritually and walk in the spirit and confess our sin. And y'all are just, you know, our kids confront us. And this couple came up in the driveway and Jenny and I were just like, and we're like, oh, hi, we're so glad you're here. And you know what? The session was on conflict resolution. And we just shared with them, you know, uh, we've really been in conflict today. And this isn't a great time for us to do premarital counseling <laughs> until we pray. And it was a great session. But the God, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's working effectually. And as we see people in cultures like Rwanda and Uganda begin to walk away from the cultural context of marriage and experience what God wants, not without problems and issues. Jesus is a relationship, and it's a lifelong relationship. We've seen abundance, and it works. Thank you so much for your partnership with us. It's fun to see some of your faces I haven't seen in a while. They look young and active and full of joy, and I'll look forward to visiting with you after church. Thank you, Grant. Great. Thank you very much. God has given us his word designed to transform our lives. Why don't we just bow in prayers? Lord, we want to thank you that you have given us your word. It is a reflection and a representation of who you are. Completely truthful, absolutely trustworthy. So, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith That you would take our childlike faith and allow it to mature as we trust you in your word and the difficult times in our life and our sorrows and the steps of faith that you are calling us to in our relationships and our reaching out and the sharing of the gospel and our discipling and helping people develop and our leadership development, Lord, in our homes, in our ministries, in our own personal lives, in the quietness of just our own bedroom as we hold your word. And we talk to you in prayer. May you use your word to continue to shape and to transform every aspect of our life. We believe you. We believe in you. And we believe in the word you've given. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.